0: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today, we're going to pay tribute to Eddie Van Halen, one of the greatest guitar players who ever lived, who changed everything about the way people played rock guitar and wrote amazing songs and was the musical core of Van Halen. And we're gonna play a conversation I had with Eddie. We're gonna play some other stuff, but I wanted to start with Greg Renoff, who's here with me today. Greg is the author of a great and revelatory book called Van Halen Rising that digs into the band's early days in fantastic detail. He also just wrote a book with Ted Templeman, the band's longtime producer. That's uh, Ted's autobiography and covers his whole career. Greg, welcome. Thanks
1: for being here. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you.
0: I think one of the many things that's interesting about his life is that here is... A guy who who was actually an immigrant. He came to America from the Netherlands when he was a little kid, and yet he became in people's minds this kind of all-American California mm-hmm. icon. And when you picture the archetypal fan of Van Halen, you definitely picture uh, Jeff Spicoli in Correct. Fast Times. It's one of those rock and roll kind tr- of transmutations that that he and his brother Alex achieved, isn't it?
1: It really is interesting. You know, the um, thing that always struck me was, you know, Eddie and Alex came from a, a family of a, a, a Dutch father and an Indo-Dutch mother. You know, and that was one of the really interesting things when I would talk to people when I wrote Van Halen Rising. They talk about how they go to the house and their mother would serve what they would the, the kids thought of, like his Chinese food or something, like basically Indonesian-Asian food. You know, and there was those marrying of those two cultures. And uh, it is, for me, one of the great immigrant stories of the 20th century i mean there's obviously a ton of them but to have a pair of brothers who come to the united states who speak no english whatsoever are thrown into you there's no there was no you know immersion courses it was basically you were thrown right in it's like guess what you don't speak english too bad sit in the back of the class and try to figure it out guys and uh for them to whatever the word is acculturate basically take to american rock music the way they did and to become you know, success is behind uh beyond anyone's wildest dreams with the quote unquote you know the funny last name. I say that because, you know, there was always jokes that would you'd rear from record company executives. Like when I first heard Van Halen, I thought is it a t-shirt? Like what like what is the van what is this Van Halen thing? Is it a car? Um, you know, for those guys to kind of go from arriving with you know, very modest means, a family that grew up in drive by the house in Pasadena, it's a two bedroom, one bathroom, very modest home that they that was their family house, to go from that to um, as you said, the ultimate American icons. It's an incredible, incredible story of. Well, I think we want to celebrate as the immigrant success story and people coming and and being accepted and and embraced by our our nation. By
0: sort of current standards, he was a person of color, as you mentioned. I, I'm not sure he ever super embraced his Asian background or that aspect of his identity, at least publicly.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I never really heard him speak about that. I presume part of. And this is just my, my impression of it. Of course, they spoke Dutch, right? The family, because of the colonial status where his mom came from, um, I always only understood that they ever spoke Dutch in the house. And, you know, there's some very funny stories about, you know, basically the brothers playing music in the house when they were young and kind of arguments back and forth with the parents or whatever, and kind of like break into Dutch. And the friends would stand there and like not know what's going on, but they knew that somebody was mad about something. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's another, another whole aspect of it is that they faced what I would say was bestly some unfriendly greetings from people. I mean, that was pretty clear from Eddie's, on the video he did the Smithsonian. I mean, I don't think he ever, you know, I don't think he ever really belabored that to a great extent, but kind of talked about how, you know, they were considered the weird kids. They were considered the different kids. Look at their, look at your mom. You're not, you know, you're not like us, basically. And so um, for those guys as well to kind of, I don't know, fight through that. I mean, I think that's part of what I would, I mean, literally fight through that. It, I think it's part of what you have as a, success of Van Halen is that drive to be like, you know what? Nothing's been handed to us. No one came and like initially hugged us. I mean, they obviously had a tons of great friends in Pasadena. And I think that should be noted. And um, I did the book and talked to a ton of people. You know, kids were little. They were like little kids and little kids are not nice to each other. But a ton of people who, who as they they grew, obviously grew very close friends with a lot of people who were hurting a lot in Pasadena, grew up with those guys and loved those guys. So um, that should be clear. But yeah, I mean, I think it's it's an incredible, like I said, an incredible... Testament to what's possible in America. And, you know, really thinking about where they came from. It's a, it's a, a story. Anyone I think who wants to have an uplifting look at what is the best of America is could look at the Van Halen brothers for sure. I would.
0: One of the many things I took away from your book is just how much time Eddie Van Halen spent learning the piano. Uh, it's always something, I mean, he made it clear that that was, that was where he started, et cetera, et cetera. But actually even into his teenage years, he was, Seriously, made to practice the piano, which explains everything about that and his innate musical genius, about how adept he was when he brought uh, synths into the band. But sure. he, he was a very serious piano player up into his teens, at least, right?
1: Yeah, the family actually was able to hire a very well-respected Russian um, Imperial Institute train—I can't remember the name of the facility exactly—but trained from um, St. Petersburg, who had moved to California and was a you know a, an incredibly in-demand piano player because he saw the potential in the boys and one of them as students. And uh, the interesting thing is that I, in the book, there was an interview that was done with Alex at some point where I, I came across it where he had mentioned that at some point, you know, things got tough uh, with the Van Halen family finances and whatever he was charging was just too much. And they, the father and the mother approached uh, the teacher and said, you know, we're sorry, but we just cannot afford. And he was teaching them for free. And so, yes, it was super important to his parents that, the boys stick with the piano. And I think, I think Ed was probably more, more skilled on it than Alex was, even though Alex obviously did it as well and can play as well, because the, the goal was concert, concert pianists to be, to be guy in the tux and three piece suit. And we all remember the scene from the Panama video, which is the scene where Eddie's blowing the smoke ring, sitting at the piano. I always thought that was sort of like a back, you know, maybe like a little sly little nod to that idea that Eddie was going to be the guy who came down with the white tuxedo and sat at the piano and played, um, play these incredible piano pieces for um, audiences of people sipping champagne. You know, it's really a, a an interesting and uh, as you mentioned about his playing on keyboards, later are a very important part of the Van Halen musical musical story. They were yeah, they were committed to it. Um, that was the family trade and family motivation was to do that.
0: And the truth is, he just, as I said, had this insane, innate musicality. Their their father obviously was a very accomplished musician, but there's an anecdote in your book where he, he picks up a harmonica he just bought and, you know, sails away on that as if he'd been playing in his own, his own life. And then even much more impressively, then borrows someone's tenor saxophone, puts a reed on it and starts playing as if he'd played saxophone for years, which is insane. Um,
1: yeah, the, uh, you know, their father, of course, had those instruments, the saxophone for sure around the house, the clarinet and those types of things. So it's like, you know, it's it's still though. I mean, I heard this great, I'll tell you this really quick anecdote. I think people will enjoy, which um, one of uh, Ed's girlfriends from high school, I spoke to her and they, Ed and um, this woman had dated for a while. And she mentioned to me that Ed was invited over to dinner at her mother's house. And they went and her mother, this was in the 19th you know mid seventies, early seventies and had this kind of chintzy faux Asian guitar that was on the wall. Like you'd buy a JC penny, like, Oh, let's make the, the room have a Asian feel to it. So we'll put a couple whatever on the wall. And he pulled it off the wall and she sort of smartly said to him, she goes, you know, that's not a real instrument, right? He goes, I know. And it had like fishing wire on it, like a strings. And he was like, she said he pulled it off the wall, had a pick in his pocket and started to, like trying to tune it and was trying to play it. And I mean, I think that's the sort of, you know, that was the sort of lock in on an instrument and what he would do. Like, yeah, like she, she was kind of making the point that like anything he could make music on, he could make music on it. If you gave him a, you know, gave him a few minutes to muck around with it, he was going to figure out a way to make music with it.
0: Now, as... People will hear in the interview he did with me, and and basically any interview he ever did. Really, the only influence he would cop to on guitar was Eric Clapton, uh, and you know they, then you'd bring up other influences, and they would say, "Oh yeah, them too." But he really was—he <laughs> right. would kind of claim that as his early as his only influence. I think one of the many things I took away from your book is that it's just not true. There's a lot of other, so many other influences from Montrose to obscure bands that people aren't uh, super familiar with. Cactus was a big influence. Right,
1: Right. very big. Uh, So
0: maybe just explain what you learned about beyond Eric Clapton. And a lot of it was just because they were covering these songs. They were a cover band for years. Uh, before they ever were Van Halen, they were first called Genesis until they found out there was another band called Genesis. Surprise! Uh, and uh, th- then they were Mammoth and then later they were Van Halen. But but yeah, explain what you learned about his his real influences.
1: You know, I, I always thought that that part and parcel that was that Ed was obsessed with Eric Clapton. And, you know, in my mind, I always think about it. It's sort of the mixing up the influence with the idolization. Like you basically could say like... The only basketball player who matters to me is Michael Jordan, and then you're like, well, you know what? You crossover dribble kind of resembles this person. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I did, I did watch him too. So yeah, I mean, I think that sort of became the stock answer as well too, because I think when we look back on on Eddie Van Halen as a public figure, you know, he was never super comfortable with being a public figure, and so I always thought, you know, he did guitar interviews, but I never got the impression that he was like, you know what I can't wait to do? I can't wait to sit down and talk to a journalist for two hours. Not that he had like this thing like, personal against it and he probably liked talking about it, but I think always there was a, you know, you say the wrong thing. That's why they let Roth do the talking. And so I always thought that was kind of like the stock answer, like Eric Clapton, but clearly Richie Blackmore, for sure. Um, I always thought a lot of the whammy bar stuff and the more aggressive classical sounding stuff probably had some Richie Blackboard's flavor to it. Tony Iommi of Black Sabbath. You mentioned uh, Cactus, which is Carmen Apice's band was a big influence on the brothers especially those high-powered shuffles they loved they loved i'm the one hopper teacher all that shuffle stuff was was definitely um you know drawn from from cactus other bands that are super obscure captain beyond but montrose with sammy which of course is always one of the great things i love to talk about too is that van halen with roth as the singer of course in 1975-76 is covering montrose songs in the clubs produced by ted templeman who produced the first montrose record and so that was you know and that's to be honest, one of the other real reasons they were super excited when Ted Templeman showed up is because, as Mike Lanthony told me, you know they were excited because they thought Ted was going to make them sound big and bad, just like Montrose. Like that, Ted was the guy who made the Montrose record sound huge. We got we got the right guy, basically. He was going to, you know, because it was a, it was a very similar blueprint.
0: Absolutely. And then, as far as the two handed tapping goes, and and for. For anyone who doesn't know, that's a a huge part of uh, Eddie Van Halen's sound. And it was that kind of the most, among the most futuristic kind of things he he did. And basically just, you know, having two hands on the fretboard, you can pull off from one note to another with one hand on a guitar, but then you add in the other hand and you you have something completely unprecedented, except it's not completely unprecedented. Because as you point out in the book, and as I was kind of aware, there were moments of people doing it before maybe you can trace the lineage of the two hand tapping a little bit
1: yeah i mean i think there's a couple pieces of this i mean the first piece is that um there is guys like billy gibbons when you listen to beer drinkers and hellraisers you could kind of hear there was like the one note thing that you know it was kind of done as sort of like a barroom trick by these guys would do it um kid Charlemagne, that's all you can hear it as well you know, but the, the story I was told by uh, Terry Kilgore, who was a, basically a childhood friend of Ed's who became kind of a guitar peer, guitar rival. He was kind of the one guy for sure that Ed had super respect for on the local level. Talked about how um, Terry had been introduced to um, uh, a guy named Harvey Mandel, who was a guitar player in Can't Heat and had done a couple solo records that you can you know, uh, find on YouTube. I'm trying to remember the name of the one I'm thinking of, but they're, they're on there. And he did this sort of, I would almost call this much more of a meandering sort of like three, two handed tapping that he showed Terry because Terry took some guitar lessons from, from Mandel who was in LA and from what Terry said, he sort of kind of showed Ed and then Ed sort of marinated that for a few, you know, for a period of time for some months and sort of had made it something much more powerful, pyrotechnic and much more, I'm just sort of something that leaps out of the speakers when you hear Mandel do it, it was kind of an interesting like sound, but it was much more reserved in some sort of way where it was Eddie. It was like all power and testosterone the way he pulled it off. And so, you know, I always tried to make clear to people and in the book I wanted that it was, you know, it's, it's sort of like Ed probably saw the possibilities and said, oh, they've taken it to here. I'm taking it to freaking Moon. And he took it and became, you know, nobody did it like Ed Van Halen. And getting back to what you said about keyboards, I mean, that was part of the facility here was that he had the facility with the two hands and he had the conception of how you could sort of string notes together on a guitar from playing piano in a way that, you know, your average guitarist never, you know, just you pick with your right hand, you you chord with your left hand and you, you know, whatever, you do your thing. But, you know, it was totally revolutionary to the point where guys like Neil Sean, who were obviously You know, among the the greatest of the great guitar players in the world, when he talks about when he first heard that. He was putting the needle back to eruption, listening, going, "Is there a second guitar there? There's got to be a second guitar. Why can't I hear the second? Like I can't hear clearly how it's being done. Is it a keyboard? You know that whole. And in fact, actually, the um, other great story that Sean talks about uh, has talked about in an interview that he basically basically pushed Ed against the wall and had Ed like Ed kind of kind of fessed up to the whole the te- basically the technique and sort of like kind of explained to him how it came about. <laughs> it's like, hey, listen, bud, you're on tour with us, you're our opener. Come on, tell me. And they, of course, they were very close friends eventually, you know, very tight. But it's uh. You know, I, you got to think about it as a as something that sparked something, and like any genius, Ed took it uh, to a place that it had never even you know no one had taken it to.
0: Yeah, I would probably somewhat compare it to the fact that plenty of other people had used feedback in their electric guitar playing before uh, Jimi Hendrix, but no one used it the way he did. Perfect. Uh, yeah. And and I think. And then whammy bar stuff, too, obviously, and that was also, uh, I love that both of these things that are among his real signatures, the two-handed tapping and the, the whammy bar. And the whammy bar is basically that metal thing on the bottom of a Fender guitar uh, that you can use to kind of warp the notes, bend the notes beyond what you could do with your fingers. But the, the problem is for for most people... It just knocked the t- the guitar out of tune so much that that no one really used it. Like Hendrix right. used it, but it, it it screwed him up live. But Ed started using it, and then led to the invention of a locking thing called the Floyd Rose that actually allowed every you know allowed it to become a cliche of the eighties. But anyway, these things were final additions, like the icing to the cake of, right. of what had been years of, of uh, development. Right. Right.
1: There's yeah. There's two points I would want to make there. I mean, that's one of the great insights that um I was able to kind of. Uh... Put together in Van Halen Rising and from a couple people talked to me about this and one guy in particular said to me, I quote him in the book, a guitar player, he said, you know, people don't necessarily understand like all those pieces, like the incredible tremolo bar stuff, the drop off the, the planet tremolo bar stuff, the two-handed tapping, the attack, all of the things that Ed sort of, like all of that sort of culminated in 1977. He's like, the guy was like, you know what, Ed is a great guitar player. If he had made an album in 1975, people would have been like, that guy's an amazing guitar player. It's like an athlete, college athlete and you wonder like where's their, where's their ceiling? Are they going to peak? Are they peaking now their junior year of college? Are they going to peak year three in the NFL? And Ed sort of hit that peak and then of course it was just, you know, he was on that plateau for years. But um, the other thing I really quickly is the technical aspects. I mean, one of the reasons why I think Ed Van Halen deserves the accolades he gets beyond the the lead playing, the, the riff writing, the songwriting was that he was a guy who had that mechanical mindset when it came to guitars. So he took them apart. He built them back together. He figured out how to take the Fender stock tremolo bar, which didn't have the locking nut like the Floyd Rose, and say, "Okay, I can set it up in a way. I'll set it up, and I, I experiment where I can do the dive bombs on stage, and it's going to stay in tune like ninety-eight percent of the time." I mean, it's you know that was one of the things too. You talk to guitar players who who would talk about that and go, "That was one of the things that was most amazing." When he really started doing that in '77 with the with the, the Strat, with the Fender, with the uh, humbucker in it that overdriven sound and they said like how is he doing that because when I do that on my guitar it's like like you said it's like Hendrix it's like you're trying to retune really quick when you take the bar and take it all the way down like that really hard and aggressively it was just you know he had a remarkable array of talents and you know that's why he's the man like everybody you talk to who is a guitar player will you know kind of in some way bow down you know he was the man
0: and while your book really covers the uh, the early years th- there's a lot of things that that foretell the future in a, in a lot of ways and, and I think I would say one Aspect for sure is it's quite amazing how hard these guys were partying before they were famous It disrupts the usual Narrative a little bit a lot of times you have you know You have bands who are fairly innocent then they get famous and then they get into the debauchery But they they were way ahead of the game Uh, It has to do with where they were and 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 who they were and there's sort of a fun side to that And there's a dark side to that. Um, It it feels like Ed's combination of insecurity And substance abuse were already starting to throw off a few warning signs early on, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that Ed has been open about, um, in 1995, in the Rolling Stone interview, he talked about how he had really struggled with alcohol and cocaine had been his two, you know, basically two things he fought against hardest. And I think, you know, um, whatever thing that begins as, as you said, like innocent partying and part of the the deal, I mean, I, I really do say with all sincerity when i say this it's not a normal way to live to go on the road for 180 days where you basically move from city to city day after day on the bus sleep sound check wake up eat play try to go to sleep and then have to come back and uh deliver and that's the other thing that's really i think remarkable about the van halen and all the bands that were successful at the time is that the labels demanded those records right away van halen got home on december 2nd 1978 and within two weeks we're in the studio with Ted Templeman doing Van Halen 2 I mean so I mean it's, at some point you start to push yourself with you know substances to keep going further than you would and I think that's I mean I think that was kind of part and parcel of all those bands of the era and uh, you know I think that uh, anyone who was a fan of Van Halen in the 80s especially you kind of you you got those you know little notes inside of Rolling Stone where you know X person is checked into Betty Ford or whatever you kind of knew the struggles and for Ed it was definitely somebody who um, you know who battled it for a long time and kind of um, eventually, from everything I heard, was had won that battle. Eventually, by the end of his life, which is, uh, you know, not an easy thing because it was. Um, it's just becomes, I think, ingrained, you know, because of the the lifestyle, so to speak. You know, it's just not. It's just not normal to live like that.
0: So there's so much more we could talk about, but I guess I would wrap up by asking you. You chronicled so closely the early years. To what extent? Did Eddie Van Halen get to fulfill all of his massive potential? Do you, do you feel like it, the, the, the rest of his career matched up to the beginnings?
1: You know, I think there's two sides to that. I think a lot of fans, and I've fallen prey to this as well in my own head, talking about where you want more. I mean, I think that's the normal... You're a fan. You want an album every two years or three years or whatever. In this era, you know, every four years, whatever it is, or and you want more. They did the one album with Roth in 2012, which I thought was a a good, a really good um, outing for them and was really enjoyable for for me and I think for a lot of people. You know, uh, the flip side of it is, you know, I can't imagine what it's like to be a guy who feels like you've accomplished everything in the world and whatever you do is always going to be judged by songs that are considered to be the greatest rock songs ever written. And if you look, there's a, uh, a new interview that MTV pulled out of its vaults from 98 with Ed giving a tour of 5150 Studios. It's going crazy on Facebook, and on Twitter. I urge people to check it out because inside of 5150 Studios, at one point, Ed's walking around and he like stops in the tape vault room, basically the wall, this wall. And no exaggeration, it's probably a 12 foot tall wall with tape boxes all the way up. You know and so you think about that and you think i wish he had done more records but they're also maybe again not knowing for sure what's on that in those tapes i presume there is plenty of material that most van halen fans and maybe um the keepers of the flame wolf and alex whoever decides to move forward with and do other projects related to van halen in uh ed's wake of his uh, his loss would probably consider worthy too so you know i just can only imagine what that's like to sort of be like you know is is jimmy page going to put out a another Led Zeppelin record cuz it would all we would all be like it's not as good as Led Zeppelin 4 you know but i think the the different kind of truth record was a really really important record for Ed and i presume Alex as well to bring Wolf into the fold and to basically pass the torch in some sort of ways i mean it was a it was a great thing for um, for fans and to have the roth Ed mix again on a record with something special and uh you know that's to me if that's the final final say of actually basically a studio record if there's not going to be like a you know whatever they put out different sort of more um, obscure stuff jams or whatever else Ed's more uh, demo stuff who knows what's left it's it's a pretty good final statement from uh, a band that i love
0: greg Renoff, thank you so much for joining us if you care at all about van helen you got to check out greg's book van helen rising Uh, it's all the more poignant to go back to it now And there's also a great autobiography with Ted Templeman that you should check out as well. Back in 2008, I met Eddie for the first time uh, in person. It was for a special Rolling Stone guitar issue. We were doing a photo shoot in Las Vegas and on the same day I interviewed Eddie Van Halen and B.B. King and Buddy Guy and John Mayer, so it was kind of an overwhelming day. And you can hear in the interview we're about to play that I was a little bit nervous. I'm not sure where Eddie's head was at that day. I remember being told that probably was not a great idea to ask about his health. So I don't know what's going on. He had a public bout with tongue cancer around 2000. Um, There were a lot of rumors about other health issues afterwards, but nothing was really confirmed until recently. And the interview was supposed to be pretty basic. We were asking everyone about their kind of formative experiences with the guitar. So these are things that Edward had been asked many times before, but it was my job to ask them. And some of what he said was a little bit surprising. Some of it was pretty fresh and hopefully it will all be interesting to hear. So. Here's me and Eddie Van Halen back in 2008 in Las Vegas. And keep in mind, B.B. King was probably just a few feet away as we spoke. The song, uh, Glad All Over, that kind of kicked started rock and roll for yeah, everybody. I mean, my brother and I used to build model
2: cars, and we used to put all the extra... After we blew up the model cars with uh, cherry bombs and lighter fluid, we'd stick all the uh, plastic parts back in the box and beat it on the box. It sounded like a snare drum. One of the first records we bought was Splat All Over by Dave Clark Five, and we'd sit down and pound it out of the box, try to make it sound like the records.
0: You want, you heard that but didn't think immediately in terms of, I want to play the guitar like that. No, yeah. uh, you
2: know, it's pretty well known that Alex and I both started out playing piano. Sure. And then I stopped playing piano and bought myself a drum set. Right. Somehow my mom convinced my brother to take maker guitar lessons. And we didn't have any money, so I had a paper. I had to pay for the drum kit. And while I was out throwing the papers, my brother got better than I did. He, he wanted to play drums, too. Right. And uh, so he started playing my drums. He got better at me. So
0: I started thinking, fuck you, I'll play your guitar. <laughs> Eventually, obviously, it was Cream and Eric Clapton, but what was, the, what was the first stuff that you were trying to play? Oh, just about anything on the radio. Yeah.
2: Uh, ventures Pipeline Wipeout That kind of stuff I mean Dave Car 5 Wasn't really a Guitar Or the other band So no. That's why we were Both into drums
0: Right Yeah And what, what I mean Were you feeling You had already You were damn good At piano yeah. When, Already yeah. yeah Yeah Well, And you stopped When you stopped Did you stop completely For a while At that Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah I picked it back up When I was about
0: 17 Right well, Why did you stop
2: Because we were Forced to play it Right Yeah uh, you weren't allowed to, to do your own thing, to write, yeah. Uh, but I never learned how to read, so it wasn't really fun for me.
0: Did you hear music in your head before you started? Yeah, playing? I
2: always I wasn't allowed to play it. What was the first song you wrote? Oh, man. That I don't remember. Just jamming. Yeah. Riffs, blues. Basically everything starts with the blues anyway. That's the reason it's one, four, five. Right. Three chords. <laughs> it's right. The most pleasing to the ear. Right. Every oh. now and then, uh, Billy Gibbons calls me up and goes, "Hey, yeah, did you find that fourth chord yet?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I hit it, I hit it fast.
0: I feel like you're underrated as as a rhythm guitarist. I feel like people don't think of you like should think of that aspect of what you do and the way. Yeah, you, I think I think that my
2: lead guitar playing kind of overshadows my rhythm playing, but I don't know. I don't mean to say the real guys out there, but real musicians actually respect me more for my rhythm guitar playing than right. my soloing. As well, as, yeah. Because soloing is almost sometimes what I say, kind of pissing up a rope, showing off. You know? Unless you're truly improvising off the melody of the song, right? Yeah. But uh, I'm actually a very rhythmic player. Yeah. Because I'm the only guitarist in the band, so I got to cover both.
0: The way you incorporate melody into yeah. the chordal playing is, I think, one of the most amazing things about. It. Well, like, thank you if I can kiss your ass a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime you like. Yeah. No. <laughs> but I was, thinking, I was listening to uh, you know "Dance the Night Away" last night. It's like, and then that's an example of just you know, yeah. it's chordal, but it's also a
2: melody. Well, I've always been a true believer that the music should hold up without even vocals on it. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. That's usually where most of the melodies come from yeah. from the music. Yeah, I you know, listen to Beethoven. You know, there's no singing on it.
0: <laughs> right well. and where, where did your where did your sense of, of like riffs and, and stuff come from like, who, who, who? I have no idea because well, well if you if you credit because you always you talk always about cream and, and Clapton as a solo yeah. influence but what what was what were you studying that kind of got you to your, your conversation it probably it? stems
2: back to piano. yeah Yeah. I mean I, I strongly suggest everyone to learn how to play piano to get into music because basically you learn chordal structure and uh, you know, Counterpoint, and, uh, just, you know things to make your head think differently.
0: Right. I heard someone say that if you want to be a musician, the, the first things to learn are piano and drums. Which yeah, you know, especially the, you
2: yeah. get a orchestra, for you finger know? touch. Sure. You got all the different voice voicings. You can invert them. You can do all kinds of stuff with a piano you can't do with any other instrument. People have said that maybe. It's like on the clarinet yeah. or a tube, you can only hit one note at a time, <laughs> you know. <laughs>
0: People said that maybe the the, ele- the electric guitar, maybe that you actually took it to its the peak of rock evolution. That maybe that maybe that was it.
2: <laughs> well, I don't know. It's hard to say. That um, I never took any lessons, so no one told me you can't do that. Yeah. If I took lessons, I probably wouldn't do all the funny stuff I did.
0: But do you, do you feel like anyone has kind of picked it? It's, it's been you know since since, since you been, tell me. Yeah, not. Not really. <laughs> I mean, you know, you hear yeah. Tom Morello and maybe he does a few things that no one ever did before, but there's not that many to, is it something you, you think, is it, do you I've heard. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. Especially nowadays with all the effects and throw tools and all this and that, you don't know what's what anymore.
0: Did you understand when, you know, the people had to take it the other way? Because in the 80s there were so many people, and I think fo- trying to follow in your footsteps the Ingvays and, and of the world uh-huh. and everything just, Crazy, yeah. Yeah, uh, did it make sense to you that it had to go the other way? That people had to break it down into a simple thing? I guess, yeah. I guess maybe people got a little tired
2: of it, but uh, it's part of my playing. So it's the way I play. Right. It wasn't a gimmick to me.
0: Right. Yeah. Was it frustrating for you to see so many people? I didn't really carry the way. <laughs> yeah. Really, but I hope but I was like a whole generation of guitar players were trying. Yeah, to, we're, okay, we're, well, don't blame me. Or yeah, it's, it's not no, my fault. Right. <laughs> 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 but but I mean it must have been. I mean you remade the entire for for a good decade. Everyone was trying to. I yeah, I guess like 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 at you. the same time it pissed a lot of people off too. It's like all right, enough of that shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but that like you said, you can't blame you for that. No, it's You like bastardized fault. your you know.
2: It's just been part of my playing since about. Seventy-two, you know, yeah, early. You know, and all of really? a sudden, everyone else started doing. It, going, whoa! You used to play with your what back- about that shit? <laughs> <laughs> you used to play with you with your back to the audience. Yeah, my right. brother told me turn around until we have a record out because nobody really understood what I was doing. Yeah, you know.
0: Did in fact from the the break and the heartbreaker, the Jimmy Page thing. <laughs> you... you basically all it is is yeah. you get an extra finger on this, sure. hand and you can put it anywhere
2: you want you can add other fingers to
0: well sure it's, it's so not simple, simple but no one did it before you, <laughs> yeah, that's
2: uh, true. But, yeah
0: but i mean but was that yeah i was
2: watching jimmy page going <laughs> like that and i'm just going oh okay i could play like that you wouldn't know if i'm using this finger or this one right and I just kind of move it around and it's like hey, you got one big hand there buddy <laughs> Yeah,
0: right. Do you do you remember? It's a hell of a spread. When did you first kind of pull that out in the context of on stage and like performing? Like about a, seventy-two. Yeah. What was yeah. the What was the I'd only really been to? playing for a few years. Yeah. Do people think that they were they were some guitar player from Mars or something? I mean, people must have flipped out hearing that.
2: I remember a long time ago we were playing um, like at Gazzari's. Yeah. And someone told us, "A Records is here to see you guys." And It was Herb mm-hmm. Albert. I met him years ago later, and uh, he came up to me and he goes, you know, one of the biggest mistakes I ever made was uh, passing on you guys. I'm going, I remember exactly what you said, too. He said, the guitarists are too psychedelic and too much uncontrolled energy. He goes, you remember that? I go, yeah. He goes, biggest mistake I ever made was passing on you guys. (laughs) And I asked him, why? He goes, I didn't understand what the hell you were doing. because it was so unorthodox. that It didn't make any sense to him because when he tripped on it, (laughs)
0: <laughs> what do you you know eruption to this day I don't know if you ever did you see there's kids on YouTube for, I don't uh, for, for really the computer <laughs> you show it. It's eruption you there's just you know eight year old kids doing their best still uh, thousands of them yeah you know but when, was that a piece that developed in concert over the, the year the uh, no 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 I was actually
2: rehearsing for a whiskey gig uh, yeah while we were we were recording our first record, the Sunset Sound in Hollywood, and uh, we were warming up for a weekend gig at the Whiskey, and I was just rehearsing. And Don Landy happened to record it. It was never planned to be on the record. So the tape on the record was a, a total freak thing. It was just an accident. He, he happened to be rolling tape. But it goes so perfectly into You Really Got Me. That wasn't... Yeah, well, it does fade out. Yeah. Meaning it's right. not connected. Right, right, right. Yeah.
0: But it feel, in everyone's head, it feels like yeah, one yeah. piece. You know. Well, that's yeah. why we put it there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good thing. <laughs> it made sense. Was You Really Got Me a staple of, of the stage shows? Was that was that always... Yeah, a, yeah. We
2: see that all day, all night. And... Uh, yeah, you know, just a bunch of old obscure, semi obscure rock tunes. I always kinda liked uh, taking old songs like that and turning a prop plane into a jet plane. To me, that's what you really got <laughs> me sounds like Yeah, artificial. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Were you a fan of the Kinks in particular? Was that a, uh, uh, I just like songs
2: by people. I'm not yeah. really I don't mean to sound like a prick or no, nothing, no, but no. Yeah. I've never really been that much of a fan of bands. Right. Outside of Cream. Right. Uh, See, like like Cream, I was more a fan of their interaction live. Yeah. They're probably the only band where I really wasn't that much into songs. Right. You know, because they were more known for their improv live. Right. You know, they're basically, what's the difference between jazz and rock and roll? We just play louder. Yeah. That's all. We get 12 notes to do what the fuck you want with them. Sure. But uh, I'm a fan of songs. I like a good song. Do you still listen to Cream, or is that I don't really you? listen to anything nowadays. I haven't in a long time. Yeah. Like every time people ask me, the last record I might have bought was Peter Gabriel's So. Wow. I haven't, I haven't bought anything since. I don't think.
0: <laughs> did you go to see any of those reunion shows, the Cream reunion show? No.
2: no, They didn't come over here, did they? There a couple in New York. Oh, they did Yeah, a real good. Oh, I didn't know. But uh, I saw them at the when they were inducted at the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Why did, how'd you, how'd you, what was it like? It was fun. Yeah. We, we went to the rehearsal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, uh, you know, I've met Eric and uh, Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce. We hung out with Jack Bruce in his room before they went and did check. It was fun. Tell the me. one thing I forgot to ask him, what the hell Swabbler means? <laughs> <laughs> it was the, the flip side to, on the, the single rising, to yeah. Sunshine <laughs> of Love <those called> Swabbler. they <laughs> never knew what that meant.
0: What was it about that? Because there were those three live songs that you learned... And probably can still play to this day But what, what, why those songs Out of the whole I don't know it was, around just, around. it was just
2: Very interesting uh, Interaction Yeah You know For three guys To make that kind of Fucking noise Together Yeah You know Jack Bruce is just amazing If you remove him in actuality, you know, this is no slam against Eric, but without Jack Bruce, I don't think Eric would have sounded that good. Right, right. Because I think Eric himself was supported as saying, you know, why do people keep bringing up Crossroads as being such a great solo when he didn't even fucking know what he was doing? Right. <laughs> because Junior Baker and Eric, well, Jack Bruce were right. playing solo around him. That it made his soul stand enough You're
0: writing. You've been writing music now for new music for for a while. Like, like you have a bunch of stuff written. Well, yeah, I haven't I've written, written well, much lately,
2: but because we've been on tour. Right, but right right I'll get back to where you were writing. Yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, those, I got yeah you know, thousands of tapes laying around. But over uh, these years, I got to go through them see what lurks.
0: Are most of them Van Halen rock songs, or are some of them <laughs> the craziest shit we've ever heard? Or what?
2: <laughs> uh, I think a lot of it will surprise you. Everything from yeah. mellow stuff to over the top weird. Yeah. Shit, you know, I always experimenting with sounds.
0: Is it, are you going to record in some fashion with I Yeah, a, hope so.
2: Yeah. 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 We'll cross that bridge when the is over.
0: Fair enough. It, obviously, music runs in your runs in your genes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, big time. Obviously, my, father, son, yes. my son inherited. Yeah, it. that's right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, now, now, your son. I mean, what, what is it about family? Oh, there's my here. Well, What, what, what is it about family playing together?
2: Well, I think it's. Uh, Exactly that, it's family. Yeah. Yeah, like Wolfie, is uh, he's just exposed to it from day one. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, you know, he was exposed to music before he popped out.
0: Well, I don't know exactly, it's just in yeah, the genes, I guess. In the, it's in the genes. You were talking about... It's just well, inevitable. Yeah. yeah. Feels like it. Yeah. Looks like it. You, you were talking about the, what's great about the piano as an instrument. What's great? Well, I mean, this is a very basic question, but what's great about the guitar? Why has the guitar lasted as the rock and roll instrument for 50 years? From, from Well, the you, can't bend, you can't
2: bend the notes on a piano. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's just a fun instrument to play. There are all kinds of weird noises out of it. Yeah. Mr. King was talking about... It's sexy. It, it is sexy, isn't it?
3: Yeah.
2: It's, <laughs> Why is it sexy? I don't know. It just feels sexy to play. As opposed to a piano. Keith Richards says he sleeps with his guitar. Did you ever sleep with your guitar? No, I fall asleep playing. Yeah. <laughs> we don't bring it to cuddle with. No. It. no. Okay. I have Janie for that.
0: <laughs> What's this? So you're you're, looking, you're you're thinking about recording. What's it, what it, what? It, how would you imagine the next few years? For the next couple of years, next year for Ben Helen?
2: I don't really make plans. It's. Uh... I don't know. Uh, this tour takes us to June 2nd, and probably take a little break, and then uh, sit down and discuss what we want to do. But uh,
0: it's always based around music. How have you managed to sustain it this time with Dave? And It, it seems like it's, it's... It's a way of life.
2: Yeah. It's just kind of inherently built in.
0: It's the only thing I know how to do. <laughs> well, sure, but you, you weren't... I mean, it seems like you guys have been able to maintain it with Dave, which is a tricky thing. Yeah. Big, beats the hell out of me! i am the
2: supposed so, to answer that? Yeah. Well, I, will ask uh, I, know, th- I guess the songs we write, you know, stand the test of time, so to speak. So, and, uh, I mean, but you're getting along on, on a personal Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. That's you yeah. seem to be. The, the, uh, we thing. always really have. To yeah. me, it seems like the press made more of a think out of shit than than we actually did. Yeah. yeah everybody kind of parts ways and tries to find their own niche, you know, or whatever. But uh, no hard feelings about anything.
0: Mr. King was saying was describing the, the moment when he really, he's got some great jokes yeah <laughs> he's got a great everything yeah he was, he was talking about the moment when he just dis- sort of discovered the glory of the electric guitar which um, is when there was a reverend in his church yeah and you know God knows 19 19- whatever you know hey rock and roll is yeah. a religious experience yeah, yeah playing electric guitar and, um, and if you yeah. can imagine I'm trying to imagine in church was there a, what was a moment for you Maybe it was your own playing, because that's what I imagined that you were sitting there playing. But when, when did you really realize the, the true magic and potential of this instrument?
2: The first time I turned an amp all the way to 10 and it distorted, I went, Yeah, <laughs> this is fun. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a great pleasure. Appreciate
4: Truly, it. Man.
0: To say someone is a musician's musician is definitely a cliche, but it's hard to know what else to call Edward Van Halen. He had an endless number of fans among his fellow musicians, guitarists most especially. Let's start with hearing what Tom Morello had to say to my colleague Patrick Doyle upon the passing of Eddie Van Halen.
5: He was hugely inspirational to generations of guitarists, and uh, I put myself high at the top of the list of people who not only learned a deepened, enjoyment of the genre because of his outstanding, unsurpassed musicianship, but also the way that he destroyed the notion that it had all been done before on the electric guitar. Yes. Um, that certainly planted the seed for you know youngsters like me to begin exploring possibilities on the instruments that were undreamt of uh, before mm-hmm. Eddie Van Halen.
0: Can you tell me about your uh, own personal experience? How you got into his music? What your early memories are?
5: Yeah, yeah. I remember the first. I mean, it was uh, it was a debut record. It was Running with the Devil. It was on Chicago radio, and you know, and I think that they would play Run with the Devil, Eruption, Into You, Really Got Me. And I mean, there's no way to describe. It was it was otherworldly. There was no there's no YouTube reference to understand like what, what could possibly even be fucking happening. <laughs> you, know? you know, there's no way like, there's, you know, that sort of a dive bomby thing that goes into, into running with the devil. And then, you know, one of the greatest rock songs of all time leads into this, you know, it's eruption is really the, you know, Eddie Van Halen was a tremendous improviser and created multiple new ways that a uh, guitar can sound, but it was that moment of eruption when it, it really tore asunder the reality <laughs> of what was possible on the electric guitar.
0: So after David Lee Roth and Van Halen parted ways in the 80s, David Lee Roth needed a new guitar player and he turned to Steve Vai, who was among the very best of the 80s shredders And continued to play amazing guitar up until the present day. And Steve Vai and Eddie Van Halen were friends. And here's a little bit of what Steve had to say again to my colleague, Patrick Doyle, about Eddie. I like
3: talking about the contribution he made because it was monolithic. Yeah. I've done an interview with you guys some years ago where I was asked who I thought the two. Uh, who I thought the game changers were. Now, Timmy Page was always my favorite. Mm-hmm. It's just the way it turned out, you know, when I was young, and, and, and Hendrix, and, and uh, Brian May. But if I had to use my intuition, I would say that, uh, you know, as I said back then, it's Hendrix and it's Van Halen. Yeah, In The realm of rock guitar, as far as I'm concerned, that really were the game changers. I mean, so many great guitarists, came along and contributed but these guys just did something for us that reshaped not just the way we play the instrument but the way we write the music and yeah. the way we dress you know and the, the way we act on stage I mean it goes really deep so and I, I firmly feel and I've always felt that he was one of those monoliths.
0: So Gene Simmons of KISS was an early champion of Van Halen. He tried very hard to get KISS's manager at the time to take Van Halen on. He had Van Halen record their first real demo in a recording studio. He tried very hard to be involved with them and and has always had nothing uh, but praise for Eddie Van Halen and the band. Now, my colleague David Brown talked to Gene Simmons and... It is very rare to hear Gene as emotional and sincere as you're about to hear him.
4: You know, you can say he's the finest guitarist on two legs, not since Hendrix, all those superlatives which are, of course, true. But for me, the most memorable image of Eddie when I heard that he passed today, it's funny, i the image that came to mind is Eddie smiling from ear to ear. Yeah. And if you take a look at the images that people are circulating, Eddie's smiling. He enjoyed right. life. I mean, he enjoyed life. If you ever went to a Van Halen show, he'd step up and just tear the roof off the sucker, and those fingers would go flying, and he's looking at the fans, hardly looking at the fretboard, where it makes us think, this is effortless, anybody can do this. And he's smiling, having the time of his life. Right. Right. I can't, you know, it's heartbreaking. My prayers and condolences go out to the Van Halen family. It's got to be devastating.
0: Not the most uplifting note to end on, but that is our show. Our condolences to everyone who loved uh, Eddie Van Halen from his fans to his family. And we will be back next week here on SiriusXM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe to us as a podcast on iTunes or Spotify. Thanks for listening. It's been a rough year, so take care of yourself, and please stay safe, and we will see you next week.